Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for your invitation. It takes a little while to get used to the, the resonation as it resonates through the room here, but uh, I guess I'll get used to it soon enough. Uh, I just want to preface this message by saying that occasionally we'll give a message on something and uh, uh, we'll have somebody come up to us. For instance, now uh, somebody will give a message on forgiveness and then the person will come up, well, what, what, why didn't you talk about repentance? Or you talk about the law and somebody will say, well, why didn't you t- mention grace? And, uh, you, you know, every message cannot contain everything that the scripture has. Today, as you heard, the title involves grace, but I want to preface this by saying that I've given three messages on the law. The law as it existed before Mount Sinai, the eternal moral law that is always in existence, as it was established on Mount Sinai in the covenant with Israel, and as it was established in the new covenant. So the law is is something permanent, and of course, ultimately, God wants to write his laws in our hearts. So this is not this is not a, a sermon that negates law, or feels that the law needs to, is is minimized in any way. But I want to talk a little bit about grace. I just finished. Well, actually, I have a couple more pages to read in the book. I was just finishing off a book <clears throat> by Philip Yancey, yeah, and he's a very good Christian writer. And I'm sure we would take some offense to some of the things he says in the book. But overall, the book is very worthwhile reading. I've read a number of his books, and he he wrote a book um, that's called What's So Amazing About Grace? And he talks about grace, and he also talks about ungrace. I don't know if he coined the word ungrace, but I'm going to be using the word ungrace, and I think you know what that means. It's just the opposite of what grace is all about. In the beginning of his book, he tells of a, of a lady who came to see him. This lady uh, came off the streets. She has a little child, a three-year-old girl, and she's caught up in all kinds of different things, uh, some of which I don't even really want to um, speak about because it's it's atrocious. But she's a a drug addict, uh, and she's a single mom, and she's caught up in the the lifestyle of uh, of drug addicts and, and involved in prostitution and many other things that... Um, most of us would not even want to think about. And she comes to this Philip Yancey, and she approaches him in in great despair and consults with him. And in the course of the conversation, he says, what about uh, becoming part of a congregation somewhere, a church? And she said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I don't need that. You know, I know what's going to happen there because I know what it's all about. I'll be criticized, I'll be judged, people will look down on me, and I'll just, I just don't need that. I need somebody that's going to love me and take care of me and help me through this, and I'm not going to find that in a congregation in the church. And he was very upset by that because the reality is that sometimes that is exactly the way it is, that we have a hard time. I would have a hard time. I would have a hard time. And when I hear what this lady has done, uh, I would have a hard time 
just setting that aside and embracing her and striving to lead her to Jesus Christ, it would not be easy. Nevertheless, I think that's really what's expected of us and expected of us as a congregation, as, as a church. I want to read Second Peter once again with you. Second Peter, let's begin reading where we started off. The context of this is talking about a new heaven and a new earth. Just prior to verse 14, that's Second Peter 3, verse 14. It's speaking about a new heaven and a new earth. And therefore, it says, therefore, because of this day that we look to, behold, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. This is talking about righteous character. And account, and account that the long-suffering of, the Lord, of our Lord is salvation. God is patient. He wants each and every single person to be saved. But God is endless in his patience. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in of them, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand. Peter recognized that not everything that Paul wrote was instantly obvious. He wrote in, in, in ways that sometimes seem confusing. My last message that I gave in Kitchener was about, actually part of it is going to be a continuing sermon, about Galatians, the churches in Galatia, and how they had taken Paul's desire to to teach about the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and, and about justification, and twisted that to teach that actually the law is done away with. And and so oftentimes when you are confronted with those who are antinomian, people who are against the law, people who are saying the law has been abolished, has been done away with, they'll often turn to the book of Galatians. Because there Paul focuses in on one issue, one primary issue, and that is of justification. And that justification does not come by works. It does not come by keeping the law because anything that I've committed and done in terms of offense to God, in terms of a sin, cannot be wiped away except through the blood of Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. Nevertheless, they take those scriptures and they try to twist them to, to mean something other than what, they, what Paul intended, as it goes on to say here which those who are untaught and unstable twist or pervert to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Or the word there is lawless. There is an indication here that people will use Paul's scriptures and twist Paul's scripture to promote their philosophy of lawlessness or antinomian uh, philosophy. But he goes on to say, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'd like to focus on today. And what that actually means. I've often thought about the scripture. What does it mean to grow in the grace? 
we kind of know what it means to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I don't think you can grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ without having a knowledge, without having a relationship, without knowing who he is. And knowing who he is comes in different ways, but a lot of it comes from reading through Scripture. We understand and we, un- we get to know who Jesus Christ as we read through Scripture. And instead of defining the word grace here, I'm going to give you examples of grace, and, and the definition will fall into place when you hear these examples. I was told once, uh, that I was given this, I would call it a slogan, that the church is not a five-star hotel for saints. Now, the context here of saints is somebody that is perfect. It's not a five-star hotel for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Does that make sense to you? Is it a five-star hotel for saints, or is it a hospital for sinners? Now, let's before we unravel that, before we unpack that, let's go through the scriptures and see what that's, that's all about, because I think we could misinterpret that to mean something that it's not. The place in the church should be a safe place. We, we feel that the church should be a safe place. It's a place where people can come here. Some of us, some of us have backgrounds where we come from, from Christian families. We haven't gotten, we're not prostitutes. We haven't got into the drug scene. We haven't murdered anybody. We've basically lived a decent life. And sometimes it's hard for people who come from a background that is relatively a moral background to be able to handle people who have come from a different background. Now, I would say, you know, I grew up in a family that my parents were hardworking, honest people. And and so I was taught what right from wrong, um, and you know, and and I was also exposed to Christianity. But in my teen years, I decided that maybe I need to spread my wings in a ways that I don't think are necessarily um, in the best interest of any young person. And so I kind of know where where I was going to, and God kind of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and. He did that, I think, through my wife, Grace, and, and, and just yanked my chain a little and brought me back online. But if God hadn't done that when I was 18 or 19 years old, I have people that I hung around with that ended up in jail, people who ended up pushing drugs. I never was in that scene, but I could easily have been in that scene. So I can kind of a little bit relate to. I don't, I don't sit up on my high horse and think that I, that couldn't happen to me, but it's still hard. It's still hard to see things that you haven't really been a part of and to be able to nurture those people. The church is supposed to be a place where people can come to, all kinds of people who have had all kinds of backgrounds, and, and to be nurtured and to be taken care of and to be encouraged and to be inspired. And that's what we're all about. Some of us need to be on the receiving end of that. But as we mature, as we ever develop a relationship with God, as we get to know Jesus Christ, as we get to grow in the grace and the knowledge, we're not just recipients of God's grace, recipients of God's grace, but now we become dispensers of God's grace, which is, which is an important part of the Christian life. And I don't think until we really receive, what, until we really understand and grasp what we received in terms of grace, 
that we can really fully dispense that grace to others. Sometimes we lose sight of that. I want you to turn with me to Galatians 6 because it is all about encouraging. It is all about being lifted up. But sometimes it's also about correction. It can be about correction. But even in correction, Galatians 6 and verse 1, even in correction, there is a, an aspect of grace in the course of correction. Let's just beginning in, beginning in verse 1 here. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, and, okay, let's, let's finish reading this. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So what do we learn from this? That there is a way that is, uh, there is a gracious way of dealing with somebody that has sinned. And then it also goes on to say that in the course of correcting this individual, gently correcting, trying to bring about changes in this individual, you got to realize that it's not as if you're you're talking down to this individual. It's you've got to recognize here, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We are also all vulnerable. If we lose sight of the fact that we are vulnerable, not necessarily to the same sin that this individual who needs to be corrected is vulnerable to, but we are all all of us. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I I think I've talked to enough people. I know my own personal experiences that I know I have vulnerabilities in my life where I could could go astray. And I have to guard myself against that. And there may be times where, I don't know, maybe I won't be, maybe I'm not close enough to God where I become susceptible to Satan's influences where I'm going to need a brother or sister coming to me and correcting me and encouraging me. So there are times for sure there are times for correction, and, 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 and maybe there are times when Paul talked to the congregation in Corinthians where there was this individual within that congregation that was committing an incestuous, had an, was involved in an incestuous relationship where the congregation was being really graceful. They'd, they'd, they'd accepted. You see, grace doesn't accept sin, but it loves the sinner, and it wants to bring the sinner to repentance. In this case, they had accepted the sin, and it was like leavening in the congregation. And it would, it would eventually have permeated the congregation and destroyed it. They didn't recognize the difference between tolerance to sin and this grace that we need to extend to one another in the course of correcting our brothers and sisters. And we know that eventually this brother repented. And then Paul had to go back to that congregation and say, wait a minute here. Now is the time to back off. You need to encourage this individual. They've repented. They've made changes in their lives. Now we need to welcome them, him back into the congregation. So there are times when um, even more drastic measures are taken, but always with the intent of, of uh, bringing that individual back to Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 10, verse 25. Hebrews 10, and verse 25. It's all about balance, isn't it, brethren? It's all about balance. 
with the Corinthian church, they got to be so that they, they thought they were being very gracious, but they'd, they'd gone to the point where they'd actually become tolerant to sin. And that part is not, of course, what we're talking about here. In verse 25, let's begin in verse 25. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backtrack here just a little bit because I want to put it within the context. In verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're talking about the grace of God extended to us. Forgiveness. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as does the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We have the opportunity within the church, within the churches and the congregations of God, to encourage individuals and to stir them to love and to good works. That's an essential part of what the church is all about. When we look at, look at what we read here, because it's talking about the fact that there are serious consequences. There are serious consequences to forsaking the, the faith that we've been exposed to. And that's why Paul is saying how important it is for us as a group of individuals, those who are called the saints, those who are part of the body of Christ, fallible, undoubtedly we are fallible. Nevertheless, we are here to encourage one another because the the consequences of failing are very serious. And we all have a part in that. We can either be a source that helps lift somebody up or we can be a stumbling block to others. And I'm sure that we've realized that and experienced that in our own interaction with one another in the church. There are times where I'm sure that I probably served as a stumbling block for others. I, I desperately try not uh, to do that, but I'm sure that I've done that. And that's I, I, there is a great deal of accountability for, in, in the case of, of, uh, of falling short in our responsibilities. I want you to turn with me. I'm going to look at, I want to look at a few examples here. I want to look at a few examples because, as I said, I, don't, I won't define the word grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ with actual definition that we would, we would uh, use from even a biblical dictionary. But I want to look at examples to formulate this concept of grace. In Matthew 9, turn with me to Matthew 9, please, brethren. I'm going to read from verses 9 to 13. Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. We know this story, and we know it well. And it's a perfect example of the contrast between grace and ungrace. By the way, the word ungrace is not in the dictionary, so when I type it out, it tells me that I've spelled something wrong. But you know what I mean by this. As we go through this, you'll know absolutely what I mean by the word ungrace. In verse 9, it says, Then Jesus passed, passed from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at, sitting at the tax, tax office. Sorry, And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and he followed him. And so it was, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, 
that behold many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. This is, this is disturbing to a lot of people. This was disturbing to them. I'm sure that even within Christian circles, this is a little unsettling. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn this, what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus was castigated, looked down upon, frowned on for having exposed himself to, for intermingling with sinners and tax collectors. We were really considered the, the lowest uh, level of life in that Christian, in that, rather in that community. So we see that Jesus had no qualms about talking to sinners. And in this case, to tax collectors as well. There were individuals here that were hungry for something. They were hungry for something. There was something, there is an inherent, there is, there is, within each one of us, there is a need that we have there. And people, for instance, like the lady we just talked about initially in the introduction, who ended up um, promiscuous, who ended up in drug scene, she was looking for something. She was looking for something, but the, she did not find it there. There was an emptiness. At the end of it all, there is a satisfaction that comes. It's a momentary satisfaction that comes with anything like of that nature, whether it be drugs or, or any other aspect. There is a momentary satisfaction that takes place, but that dies very quickly, and you're left empty again. And, and these individuals, like this lady, that were looking for something. There was an inner need, an intrinsic need, that we have within us. God has built within us an intrinsic need for something. And it really is him. It's, it's God himself that we need. And these individuals were coming to him, both tax collectors and sinners, and they wanted to be healed. That's why we use this. That's why the, I looked at that slogan. Is this a hospital for sinners or is it a five-star hotel for, for the saints? Where we can pat each other on the back and we can relish in the fact that we're not part of this world and, and, and all of those things which which um, we are not part of this world. But that does not exclude the fact that we need to extend that grace to others as well at the same time. Turn with me to Matthew 11, verses 28. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Just a few pages over. Some of the examples... That we have here are in Matthew, but I'm going to look primarily at, at, at the Gospel of Luke in a few minutes. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what these tax collectors and sinners were doing. That's what people in the world are looking for. They don't know what they're looking for, and they're looking in all the wrong places a lot of the time. But Christ says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Wow, what a promise that is. And I will, I, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that what they were looking for? Wasn't that what that tax collector and those sinners were, those tax collectors and sinners were looking for? They were looking for rest for their souls. They were looking for some, some inner peace, just as that lady was. And she says she wasn't going to find it in the church. And that's a sad commentary. I hope she finds it in the Kitchener Church. I hope she finds it in the Burlington Church or any of our other churches. But one thing is for sure, we in the church have to guard ourselves. We are very vulnerable to becoming like that, becoming closed to accepting individuals that are different. And I know that I know there are circumstances where we have to be careful about protecting the church. And I, you know, I'm making some general statements, but we have, there are situations where uh, the church has to be very careful about protecting the flock. And so you can't just accept people in carte blanche. Yes, the general principle is that we bring people into the church, we love them, we take care of them, we 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 cult we we um, cultivate a love for Christ and a love for His laws and for His way of life. But there are situations, of course, where the church has to be protected, and that's and, and I'm not excluding that those possibilities, but I'm talking general principles here. Turn with me now to Luke, because I, I, I really love what Luke always has to say. You probably know that, because I've said this in the past. Luke 18. I want to, uh, be, uh, before I read this, before I read this in Luke 18, I want to just comment about something about the scripture we'd read back in Matthew 9. It said that he did not come for the righteous, did not come for the righteous. What did he mean by that? He was talking to the Pharisees who were criticizing him for speaking to, for, for spending time with, for entertaining, for uh, having an ear to those who were sinners and, and tax collectors. And when they criticized him for that, he said, he didn't come for the righteous. What did he mean by that? They took it that, okay, we're okay. He didn't, he didn't come for us, he, he came for these sinners. But what did Christ mean by that? He meant he did not come to, to, to take care of those who were self-righteous, who didn't acknowledge that they were sinners, who didn't recognize the, the deep sin that was within them because it was a, a, a pride and arrogance. And he can't, Christ couldn't deal with them. He could deal with those who recognized that they were sinners. Those were the ones that were coming to him for spiritual and emotional healing. And those were the ones that Christ could deal with. He couldn't deal with the righteous, those who were self-righteous, because they weren't receptive to Jesus Christ. They didn't need Jesus Christ. They were righteous on their own terms. And that's where this uh, book in Luke, in Luke 18, takes us. It takes us exactly there. It's just beautiful how the scriptures just tie in so well together. Luke 18, verses 9 to 12. Here we have... The sinners that we're talking about, the tax collector or the publican. And it's a, this is a parable. But a parable that is, you know, there's stories that they call, they call historical fiction. Historical fiction is our, our stories that are presented in such a way that they, they are truthful in many, many different ways. But they take, they take aspects of it and they dramatize it a little bit. Well, a parable in this case, I think, is a little bit like that. This is the reality and Christ is dramatizing it in a way to bring across a really important point. 
Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. These are the righteous that Jesus was talking about. Not righteous in the real sense of the word, but self-righteous. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, de- and, de- and despised others. This is, the, this is the part of the ungrace that we're talking about. This is the ungrace. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as tax collectors. It's interesting when we're going through that, when I was going through, I'm going to stop there for just a minute. I'm going to take a little side trip. When I was going through the book on Galatians where it says that that there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither neither uh, um, slave or free, neither uh, male or female. As it's going through that, it's making us all equal in the sense of God's perception of us. We are all just as valuable in God's guise as each anyone, whether you're male or female, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Whether you're, whether you're a free man or you're a slave, to God, you are, sees you as a person. And he loves you and he sees you as the, in the image of God. But the Jews had a, a prayer, every, I think every morning, and said, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman. I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. And I thank you that I'm not a slave. And Paul is throwing that all out because he's saying that we are valuable. And we see a little touch of this. We're precious in God's eyes. And this Pharisee uh, did not see it that way. He saw himself as so, so superior. And he was so thankful that he wasn't like this tax collector, this sinner. And he goes on to say, I'm not as this other, these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. This was a law-abiding Jew. And this is where I, I'm cautioning myself and I'm cautioning you. When we strive to obey God, and we've done it for many, many years, sometimes we can take on this attitude. Sometimes we can take on the attitude of the Pharisee where we look down with a, with a certain... Um, hesitation and, and, and a repulsion towards others who are sinners, forgetting where I came from, forgetting where I came from, forgetting where you came from. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all I possess. And then now we have the tax collector standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and who, he who humbles himself will be exalted. We have here God's gracious generosity towards a sinner that's willing to humbly come before him and repent. And rejection of this law-abiding individual who haughtily looks down on and rejects, who is ungracious towards his fellow man. So what am I saying? We should stop being law-abiding Christians? Of course not. 
But we have to be careful that in the course of being a law-abiding Christian, over many years, we don't become self-righteous. It's easy for us to do that. I think particularly because we have a tremendous amount of knowledge in the churches of God, we are vulnerable to that. I think all of us are vulnerable to that. And so we have to be extra careful not to fall into that frame of mind, frame of thinking. Turn with me to Luke 15. Luke 15. You know, it's, it's just wonderful how Luke always seems to um, take the disadvantages, disadvantaged individuals, the underprivileged, and even the sinners, and he brings to light on them in a, very, in a way that is such, so, so kind and merciful and so gracious. In Luke 15, so just back a few pages, I'm going to read. This is a very, very common parable that um, we have here. And we could read all of uh, chapter 15 here. But my main focus is going to be the, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, the wayward son. The, the first two parables are talking about lost sheep and a lost coin and how important it was and how wonderful it was when those individuals, when the individual found the lost coin, how joyful they were. And when the person found the lost, the shepherd who found the lost sheep, what a wonderful thing that was. He was overjoyed. He was, and we know that what that represents. We're talking about a sinner that has been brought back into the flock, back into the fold, turned back to Jesus Christ, who has repented. What a wonderful thing that is. And we have baptisms and we talk about the rejoicing in heaven that takes place. And I'm sure that that's true, that there's this tremendous rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents of their sin. This next parable ties in with those, but it's unique. There's a unique aspect to it. We know the story. I'll just outline it briefly. There's the two sons, the older son, who was the faithful son, who was the obedient son who stayed at home with the father, who waited for his inheritance. Then there was the young son who decided he'd stretch his wings, he would go out, he wanted his inheritance, which, which was a, in one sense uh, an act of, of, of uh, dis, disregard for his, his father. It was, it was, he was in asking for his inheritance before his father died. It was an act of disrespect. And he went and he took that inheritance and he wasted it. He wasted it on everything you can think of. Maybe much like this woman that we talked about. He wasted it. No drugs back then, but it probably in all other ways, he wasted his money. And then he found himself completely defunct at the end of his rope. There was nothing left. He was feeding pigs. And for a Jew, that is as low as it can be. They were better off. The pigs were better off than he was. And he thought about his father and thought about his home. And he comes back home. And we have this beautiful scene. We have the beautiful scene of the father who was, seemed to be waiting there all the time. Anxiously, maybe the word anxiously is not the word, in anticipation. Hopefully, maybe that's the better word, hopefully waiting. And he sees his son in the distance. And the, when he, the son who's coming back is thinking, I'm going to have to give some kind of an explanation to my dad. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to say, I'm so sorry. I wish I'd never done this. And he's thinking about all this, what he's going to say to his father. And before he can, he can say anything, his father comes in and embraces him. 
And we have this story to tell us about the grace of God. But what makes this story unique is not so much that. As beautiful as that is, I love this story. It's a beautiful story. But secondary message is here that sometimes we might not take note of. The other brother, the obedient one who stayed with his father, was out in the field. We have this example of ungrace. We have the example of the father, the grace that was extended, and how overjoyed he was, and how he gave them a robe and sandals, and he just killed the fatted calf. And then there's his brother in the field who wouldn't even come in. He could hear what was happening. He knew that there was some celebration. He didn't want to come in. He heard from his servant that his brother had come back. He doesn't even call him his brother anymore. He, does, he disowns him. And then his father comes to him and says, you know, I've get, everything I have is yours. He didn't earn those things. We have to remember that. An inheritance, no matter what he did, he didn't earn that. An inheritance is something that is given. It's a promise made. Yes, he was loyal. But what, what about this attitude that he had towards his brother, this attitude of ungrace? His father comes to him and says, come on. Your brother was lost and now he's found. You should be rejoicing. And now you're resentful. What is this parable telling us? Those of us who are in the church and have been here for 30, 40, 50 years sometimes, it's sometimes easy to be, maybe the word resentful isn't the word, but sometimes we can see somebody come into the church that you've, I forgot what I was like 40 years ago when I needed the grace of God. And and now somebody's coming into church. Maybe it's a prostitute. Maybe it's a maybe it's a person that's been doing drugs. Maybe it's a homosexual who wants to who wants to abstain, has a same sex attraction. But he says, I want to live I want to live according to the, the word of God. And I I'm asking God's Holy Spirit to help me through this. Do we find ourselves even in our body language or the way we treat with them where we're standoffish where we I, I i don't feel comfortable with this individual it's easy to do that isn't it it's very easy to do that and god says that's not what the church is all about we need to embrace that person like like the father embraced his son who was wayward very much so turn with me to i'm just going to go up to another scripture here another scripture so we have these examples of grace and ungrace. Uh, John 8. Turn with me to John 8 in verses 1 to 12. Now this is not a parable. This is, a, this is an example of a situation. Again, we have an example of the grace of Jesus Christ in a situation. And... And those who were ready to do two things. First of all, they were ready to stone this woman caught in the act of adultery. But they were using this to trip up Jesus Christ. They were wondering, how is he going to handle this? And so we have these individuals who epitomize ungrace. And then we have the example of Jesus Christ. Let's begin reading here. Uh, in verse, and let's begin at the beginning, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is just after the Feast of Tabernacles. 
But early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, now something is conspicuous here. There's just one person. Adultery takes two individuals, and there's just one person here. They said to him, to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And now Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him in some that's that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Which was generally the person that was the um, victim of a sin was asked to throw the stone first. But Jesus Christ said, He that is without sin, throw the first stone. And then again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. It doesn't tell us what he wrote on the ground, but it had an impact on those individuals that were ready to stone this woman. Then those who heard it believe being convicted by their conscience. So there's a little hint here. A little hint here that they they knew that Christ knew what their sins were convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Sorry, woman, where are those accusers of you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now, he didn't stop there. He said, go and sin no more. There was a responsibility on her part. But this is the graciousness of God, who gently, quietly, sensitively dealt with a situation that was potentially um, a situation where maybe we could have had in an individual being executed. And he treated this woman with such grace that I would like to know what happened after this. I have a feeling that this had such a dramatic impact on this woman that she turned her life around. We don't know about that, but I expect that it would have had a huge impact on her. Neither do I condemn you. And, and he and said, and sin, go and sin no more. And then he said, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. How was he the light of the world? We just saw an example of how he was the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He expects us to express that light as well in our lives. I won't go there, but you could look there if you wanted to. Just another another area, another example. I'm going to quote uh, from... Um, uh, an article that I read just recently. The article was uh, uh, entitled, Lepers All We Are. Lepers All We Are. And it was based on the parable 
of the ten lepers that came crying to Jesus Christ, who had to keep their distance. They were always told to keep their distance from anyone because of the fact that they could be contagious. And if they were downwind, they had to be so far away. And if they were upwind, then it was they didn't have to be quite as far away. But in order that this serious disease, this debilitating disease, this destructive disease, did not get passed on to others. The lesson, of course, is that that's the way sin is. And these ten lepers came to Christ, and they begged to be healed. And Christ said, go to the priest and be cleansed. And on their way to going to be cleansed, they, he didn't heal them right there. On their way, they were healed. And one of them turned back and praised Christ, came back and worshipped him and cried out with great joy and thanksgiving because he'd been healed. We don't hear about the other nine. But the one that came back was a Samaritan. The one that was... And in, in, in Luke specifically tells us about this fact and points out that this was a Samaritan that came back to Jesus. Again, somebody that was looked down upon by the rest of society, that the Jews had, would have nothing to do with Samaritans, as they would with publicans and Romans and others and Gentiles. But Samaritans were considered a class in themselves, and they w- would never have anything to do with, with them. I want to read to what he says in his article here. His name is Mr. Weber. And he says, One way we worship him, that is Jesus Christ, is in acknowledging his grace, his favor, every day, every day by treating every human being who is in the image of God with dignity and respect. Perhaps it is time to eliminate our self-distance rule, which we naturally do with people that we don't, can't really relate to. The self-distance rule regarding those we feel are outside of God's ability to reach. To heed Christ's invitation to follow me is to understand that it's not our role to choose who can be part of God's family. That's, that's quite a powerful statement that he makes here. Powerful statement. I would like to go. Uh, yeah, let's go there. I think I have a little bit of time left. Let, let's go to Jonah. Jonah, because we have this example of grace and ungrace in Jonah's. Maybe the, that whole book is, is an example of that. Turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Powerful lesson. These are the Ninevites. These are, this is a violent, a violent city. This is a violent city, a violent nation, so to speak, who would eventually um, bring destruction on Israel and on, on uh, bring, bring destruction on Israel and Judah. So we have this nation who in the eyes of Jonah, were the most repulsive people that he could think of. And he was asked to go to them and to warn them that destruction was going to come to them. But he was reluctant. He was reluctant. And this is the reason that Jonah was reluctant, because of his ungrace. Because in, verse, in chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 10, or verse 9, he says, 
who can tell? Oh, this is, this is referring to the king. Who can tell God if God will turn and relent and turn away from fear, his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So there's at least a sense in this king that there, there is hope in approaching God and turning your life around. And then God saw their works, that they had turned from their evil way, and God relented from, his, from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. He had, he had sent the prophet Jonah and said, this is what's going to happen. And then he changed his mind because of what the people did. But it di- displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. He was angry with God. Because of God's grace, because of God's generosity. He did not feel that God should have extended his, the grace to, his, the, the, to these unrighteous people. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? I knew exactly what was going to happen because I know your character. Therefore, I fled, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, in abundant and loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And then he goes on to try to, God goes on to try to show him how foolish he is for thinking that way and how he should be happy that these individuals have repented. And so we have this example again of, of uh, God's graciousness beyond our, in some ways beyond even our comprehension. And the human tendencies within us. Jonah was a prophet of God. He was a man of God. And look at his attitude. Look at his attitude. Are we beyond falling into this trap? I don't think so. I think all of us are potentially vulnerable to get into that frame of mind. I know I am. And I know I have to guard myself against it. Isaiah 58. This will be the last scripture. Isaiah 58. You know, somebody sent me an email, and of course, for the sake of confidence, I can't mention any names. But they talked about their their sadness because of the church's religiosity. Because the church sometimes can become, can lose their sincerity. And, and this individual um, was, I think, disappointed is the word, disappointed in what she saw, and um, I hope that, I hope that she was wrong about that. But Israel here is a great disappointment to God. There, there, the people here that God, that Isaiah is, is approaching have gone through all the motions. They've gone through all the motions, but their heart is not right. Let's read through this. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Isaiah, he's telling Isaiah. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. That sounds like a good thing. They delight to know my ways. That sounds like a great thing. As a nation that did righteousness... 
Who can fault them for that? And did not forsake the, or, the, the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching God. There is a sense of righteousness here. But it's superficial. Why have you fasted, they say. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen. Not unlike the Pharisee who was praying in that parable. And God didn't hear him. Why have we afflicted our souls and you have taken no notice? In fact, that in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. Now we get down to the nitty gritty here. There was a semblance of righteousness. There was a semblance of religion, true religion. But it was, as this lady said, religiosity, religiosity. We can't have religiosity in the church. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with a fist of, the, of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. They were trying to manipulate God for their own purposes. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush? Yes, that part is good. And to spread the sackcloth and ashes? Of course. Would you call this a fast? But if that's all there is to it, if you're just going through the motions and it looks great, then what value does it have? And an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I've chosen? And maybe we could say, is this not the Christian life that I've called you to? To loose the bond of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens? Now we're talking about grace here. This is this is grace extended to others. We've been the recipient of God's grace. Now God says, extend this grace to others. To undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. And we might look at these things physically, but there's also a spiritual component to this. A spiritual counterpart. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor, who are cast out, people that can't pay you back. Grace is giving something out that you can't, you won't get back something in return. When you see the naked, that you cover him, and you and and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the accusing, I'll put the word in there, the pointing of the accusing finger, judgmental attitude, and the speaking of wickedness, backbiting, gossip, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness. We're going to be that light, not hid under the bushel. And your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide your, you continually. This is, this is the grace extended. Grace received from God and grace extended to others. And satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones and you shall be like watered, a watered garden and like a spring of water, whose water 
waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old ways places. The act of grace is constructive. It builds bridges. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called. This is a wonderful way to be defined. The repairers of the breach. And the restorers of the streets to dwell in. If we take the gift that God has given us. His grace. His mercy. His forgiveness. You know we define grace as unmerited pardon. If we take God's unmerited pardon. And we recognize what we've been given. And for, for some of us, that began 40 or 50 years ago. But every day, I don't know about you, but every day, I know I fall short. It says we all fall short of the glory of God. Was that just at one time in my life, or is it something that I have to work on every single day? Do I require the grace of God every day? And if I do, then shouldn't I extend that to others? And if I don't extend it to others, what's that saying? I don't really understand what God has done for me. I really don't appreciate what he's done for me. And therefore, I don't have within me this great joy and, 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 and uh, thanksgiving for what I've received, which spills over into my daily life in the sense of grace towards others. That's exactly what it's saying here. And not only that, we will be the repairer of the breach. We'll bring those individuals, like that woman, who makes me shrink back when I hear what she had done. Like that woman, bring those people to Jesus Christ and we become the repairers of the breach. Brethren, we have to guard ourselves because God has given us a great responsibility. He's given us a phenomenal truth. He's taught us things that we would never have known other through his revelation and through his Holy Spirit. He's given us forgiveness. Now he expects us as a church to extend that grace to others as well. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.